like it if we could get whoever did the interludes for Midnight Marauders. Um That's a Cal Jader record. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. Uh, when me and Paulo used to do our fake radio shows on cassette when we were in college, Paulo I had the record. Paulo was like, Oh, you have this record? Let's just do it. <laughs> he just did it, and yeah. like he did the like the fake voice. We have a whole like we had a whole skit we did in like thirty seconds of doing that. So if you donate to our non-existent Patreon, you get <laughs> yeah someday the we'll, set of the tapes. Um, we'll release some secret tapes. Yeah, actually, me and Cutso getting drunk off Heineken's while my dad watched uh, "Pardon the Interruption" in the other room, and uh, <laughs> we fucked around and made tapes. <laughs> That's how all the greats started. Um, you have just heard from myself, Demone Carter, Mister Nate LeBlanc. Um, our quasi-silent partner, uh, David Ma. <laughs> What's is, up, everybody? Uh, chilling in the corner. Dave, I actually I thought about you this weekend because I got the Air Dave Ma's. Um, I went shoe shopping. <laughs> you got some black winos? I got, I got black on black vans. <laughs> and I was like, these are some fresh, the new Dave Ma ones. The new Dave here? Ma's? Yeah. They only come in size eight. <laughs> in a couple of years, you'll have a big pile in your corner, just like Dave's house. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so I, I, you were seen um, at DSW when I copped those. Um, this is the Dad Bod Rap Pod. We talk about rap and associated shit. Um, and the trajectory for the show has been really, really interesting. When they go back in, in the annals of time and look at our guest list, um, people are going to be like, y'all was fucking with that back then? Right. Yeah. Uh, we start off with a, an interview with Prince Paul, which has um, some of the best lo-fi audio uh, that has ever... Someone should put it on a YouTube playlist. It's, yeah. v- it's very lo-fi. <laughs> and play it in a coffee shop on a six-hour loop. Um, you know, we we have... We talked to JJ Fad. We talked to Chris Crack. Right, we, right. we talked to Gift of Gab. We, we talked to so many different people. And on today's program, um, yeah, it's just... It almost blows the mind. When I get the message from Dave Ma about who we're talking to, <laughs> sometimes I just have to be like, we're really doing this? Like, this is really happening? Um, well, today was a special one. Yeah. You know so I mean? even even of all those, even this even tops like the Dave Ma, hey, we're going to talk to Raskaz in 15 minutes. <laughs> um, we have two members of The Last Poets on today's program. We were fortunate enough to talk to them. And... Uh, we kind of just had to like walk outside after both of these interviews because like it, heavy, deep, wide, right, thoughtful, wise, wise. Yeah. You feel like you're in the presence of something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was I was blown away by the quality of the responses and just how much it resonated with, especially contemporary society. Like they're known for their late '60s records. That's when this kind of got started. But mm-hmm. everything they say is like so relevant to what's right. happening now. 
Not big fans of the president. <laughs> no, no, no. Relevant, so, timeless. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so they they definitely chimed in on on history and kind of their feelings on on the current moment. And they've got a new release, uh, "Transcending Toxic Times," which is a very timely um, right. uh, title. But let's start before we we jump into the interview. Let's kind of. Uh, quantify yeah yeah Mm -hmm. where where does where do the last poets sit in relation to hip-hop and hip-hop culture um we we did ask the question so we'll you know we'll let their responses stand i've seen you know some folks feel like there's there's just a direct through line from what they were doing Mm -hmm. poetry over um over drum and they're like that was hip-hop. the beginning of hip hop? Right. right. I don't. I don't quite take it there. I think they they do a, like only in retrospect can it be considered proto rap. Like they didn't try to invent right. hip hop. Right. They tried to do their style of poetry, which was this like fiery, fiercely political poetry mm-hmm. over drum beats. And like hip hop didn't get back to just using like hand drums like they use right. until quite a while longer. Like I, I'm thinking like a kind of like New Yorican Poets Cafe, mm-hmm. like like early 90s bohemian kind of rap kind of got back to that, but right. they didn't use breaks. So it's not right. hip-hop right, in right. that way, but weren't the doubling of breaks trying to get to that tribal Pretty place much. with drums, but yeah. with technology? like So it's tough. So the, oh, there are a couple things that are considered proto-rap. Last Poets, Watts Prophets, Gil Scott Heron, mm-hmm. um, and all of those are touched upon later. And, and all, then, th- all those three are in a separate you know, component of their own. I mean, a separate totally category. each had their own amazing right. careers right. and like influence in. And uh, then there's also things like um, I, whether people consider uh fatback bands, King Tim, the third, right. As right. the first rap single or the last proto rap single. Exactly. Ooh. Exactly. Right. That's exactly. kind of, that's you. Right. Cause I, it's kind of like for heads and Dave wrote about this and knows more about this than I do, but I just talk more cause I'm louder. <laughs> um, they, the fatback band either invented hip hop or like crystallized it in the moment or were the last thing that wasn't hip hop that sounds exactly like what we consider right, hip hop. Right. And then Rapper's Delight became the thing that took it mainstream. That's pretty much it. That's exactly it. I mean, you know, he was totally rocking, talking like this, you know. Well, and the last poets don't talk like that. No, you know what right, I mean? They don't. It's a completely right. it's a totally different, different cadence. Yes. As as a so Fatback being kind of a, a riff on on black radio DJs, right? Because it's like personality jock yes. jock being exactly. a radio DJ. And so I, you know, I'm not an expert, uh, but I do feel like the idea of rapping and fly talk has just been around. Oh, I, you know I, what I mean? In the way that you put that, we should we should put another thing in here where um, one of the members of The Last Poets, and I don't want to get it wrong, did the Lightning Rod Hustlers? Yes, yes. Hustlers that's all I was getting to. Anthem? Okay, yeah. you got so, it. I'll so, let you take it. So the, the idea of fly talk, which is probably first crystallized on record with lightning rod the break was so loud <laughs> that it hushed the crowd if that's not hip-hop like totally yeah dude. It's yeah like he was talking about pool but it's easily to be a pride and it, it was just so slick it was just it was a way of talking that was slick but he didn't invent that that's a street way mm-hmm. of talking totally. right mm-hmm. and so this idea of of rapping or what my elders would have just called talking to someone right is <laughs> like that's what rapping was I'm, let me right. rap with you or my elders would have called that noise yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
My great grandmother used to call it bump and jump music, and she didn't like it. Oh wow! Um, but yeah, cool. so so there's there's definitely always been that thread of um, convincing someone through a slick talk. So if you are right. a street hustler, if you are a preacher, if you listen mm-hmm. to um, Southern Baptist preachers, mm-hmm. it's not very different from what juvenile and all those guys were doing. Right. Even some of the stuff you hear now, there's a sing songiness, but the cadence and the beat of the talk is always there. And I think the last poets, what their real innovation was is, and, and they touch on a little bit is this idea that really the sparse drum is the perfect backdrop. And I would say that sure. rap doesn't really figure, figure that out until like, Sucking MCs, right? Like right. at first they're like slapping rap over mm-hmm. disco, right? Uh, which is just a whole. Nother well, I mean, vibe. like you know, Sugar Hill Gang and all that. I mean, that was party people in the place to be. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And I mean, subject matter and content wise, it's like it took a while to revert back to oh, the last for sure. poets. For sure. You know, it, it's it's almost an ironic name that they're the last poets. They were the first poets. They were the first. Right. You know, <laughs> totally. So I consider myself to be a pretty big fan of the last poets. I've got a repress of the first self-titled album. Mm. I've got an OG of This Is Madness and an OG of uh, Delights of the Garden with Bernard Purdy. Mm. So that's like the literal best drummer ever with these dudes who completely spawned this new style of performative poetry. And so just brief anecdote, um, there's a song on this, uh, on Delights of the Garden called Beyonder. And it's just, if you've never listened to it, it's just an absolutely impeccable piece of music, whether you want to call it soul music or poetry or proto-rap, like... What year was that? That was 77. So rap was just about to break when mm. they put this out. And it's, um, I don't want to say much about it other than you should just stop listening to us and go listen to it. <laughs> um, it's just an incredible song. And so when um, Hurricane Katrina happened, I had um, a working relationship with this art gallery. Um, shouts to Anna Domini. Shouts to Sherry and Brian. And um, they allowed me to throw a benefit there. So I got a bunch of my friends to do art and to DJ and to do all this cool stuff. And I called the event Beyonder. And my whole thing I was going to do, because it was so resonant at the times with what was happening in New Orleans, was like in between the DJs to like play a couple minutes of like while the guy was setting up. And it's a long song. And I don't actually think I did that that much. I think I just played the whole thing at the beginning because like... How do you, you know the logistics of that are tough, but um, anyway, so I, I've always had a strong connection with that song, and it's like deep, you know. It's I, just I mean, it's right. such a great song, like I, everyone, you'll get the chills. The subject matter that they touched upon at the time that they touched upon it, um, in terms of my own political thought, is just very foundational. So, 100%, I think right? I got hip maybe i bought a box i bought the box set which has the first i think three albums and some like different takes and stuff and so songs like white man's got a god complex mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, true yeah shit oh wow yeah uh, Nate does. Nate niggas does. are scared of revolution <laughs> um you know just all these ideas on uh politics uh as they relate to black people and oppressed right, people right. also sexuality mm-hmm. um just wild, wild, and that's why I'm kind of like, they had so much uh, balls and fearlessness mm-hmm. to be saying what they were saying at the time that they were saying it. It, so, was, it was cool to hear um, Abby O'Doon talk about Langston Hughes, because, I mean, a lot of their stuff is like Langston Hughes, um, uh, I don't know, expounded on, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's it's kind of his, his whole commentary about uh, Harlem, which we'll hear in a little bit. 
Um, also really resonate as, as somebody who I, I love Harlem and I know I'm not, I haven't experienced it in the way they did in 68, obviously. Right. Um, but his, his whole centering of what they did in what was going on in Harlem in 68, um, just really, really rich. And I feel like we were a rap podcast. Sure. Um, but we really were able to, um, get some real historical documentation. This 100%. is like, this is a, a, a form of storytelling that I think is valuable, whether you care about rap or not. Exactly. Agree. Probably the, the main episode that we've done where I would recommend that everyone listen to it, not just our core audience or not just sure. hip hop heads. Like right. you could get a lot out of this. These guys are so wise. And I like know. the way they talk is amazing. Um, timeless a real honor, themes. A real honor to re- talk to them. Timeless themes that have remained unchanged. You know what I mean? Yeah. For De- better or depressingly. For totally. Yeah, right. Coming from these guys who, who were frustrated 50 years ago. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. So uh, for me, it's, I don't know, it gives me a sense of hope in that you can stay angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Angry and, and prideful, too, though. Yeah. For, you know? for a long, long time. Um, and still be amazing and dope. And uh, their new record, Transcending Through Toxic Times, uh, comes out this week. I believe um, if it's not out already yeah. when you listen to this. Um, so with, I don't want to, I don't want to step on it too much. I don't want to w- be one of these people who, um, who spoil things for people, which we is already a- previewed it pretty hard. So yeah. let's go. <laughs> yeah. So uh, without further ado, here is um, our yeah. interview with Abby Odoon um, first, and then we will be uh, talking to, Umar bin Hassan. After after a little break. So here's part one interview, Last Poets. This is the Dad Bod Rap Pod. We are honored to have Abby Odoon of The Last Poets here with us today. Um, thanks for making the time. We just wanted to ask a couple questions, um, starting with how did the idea of speaking poetry over the drum come to be? Like, how did you guys come up with that? Well, well that, that almost came about, like, as... Um I think it was just a natural kind of marriage because the first time we went on stage in 1968 on Malcolm X's birthday, we were on stage at Mount Morris Park. That's a park in Harlem that's been renamed from Mount Morris to Marcus Garvey Park mm-hmm. and um, at 122nd and 5th Avenue. So when we went on stage, of course, we didn't have the name of the last poets. So it was just myself, David Nelson, and Galen Kane. And there were some drummers and African dancers on stage prior to us going on. So when I saw the brothers packing up his drum, I told this one brother, who happened to be the leader of the group, to um, just stay there and you know give us some rhythm. I kind of motioned him to give us a little pulse behind what we were doing. So Hakeem was his name, and he stayed on stage and he played a little something, nothing overbearing, just a little background while we were performing. And and it worked out perfectly because 
everything that we say politically, whether it's rhyming or not, has a pulse, has a beat. Mm. And he found that particular beat that worked with what we were doing. So it was kind of like a natural hand in a glove relationship between the poetry and the and the and the voice. So when we started putting the group together, we tried other instrumentations like we even tried Terry Kaya with his guitar. Okay. Uh, but that didn't work because we wanted something that could accent what we were saying, but at the same time not be melodically involved. Mm. And that was a drum. So so the drum was it. And we went through a few conga players before we decided on Elijah, the one that we used on the first album. He was magical because he understood the language of the drum and he also knew how to complement what we were saying. So it was just a perfect relationship. And I think that when you probably trace back the history of African people, I believe there was probably something very similar, mm. if not identical, to that happening in Motherland thousands of years ago because mm. there had to be some information disseminated. And what other ways best to do it with a drum call and then the voice to to speak on over top of it or or at least you get the attention with the drum and then the person lets you know what's going on. Or maybe the drum itself had a language that the people could interpret and, and move forward with. But I do believe that the drum was an essential to our communication and so by using it it gives us a connection with the motherland and at the same time it allows us to accent what we're trying to say. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that. Um, you know, could you take us back a little bit and sort of give us a sense of what New York and specifically Harlem was like at that time where you guys emerged? Well, Harlem was, was always fired up. You know, that was one thing about Harlem that made it special from any other place in the country. There was always a forward, a, an unapologetically unblack attitude in Harlem without, you know, we... It was almost a kind of like a black arrogance, you know, that you could feel when you walked the Harlem. Like black folks were proud to be black and and and, and clean and fly, and all the stylistic things that you could say about black people in America. They seemed to magnify in Harlem. So Harlem was always that place that seemed to be the citadel for black culture in America. And then of course we had poets like like St. Hughes and Claude McKay's or you know, Hurston, I mean, these people helped make it important as well because they gave us the poetic sound. And then, of course, we had jazz spots. You know, we had the Club Baron. We had all kinds of, you know, as Harlem is home of chicken and waffles as well. So there's a lot of black cultural events and nuances came out of Harlem just because of our thirst and need to be free and to live like liberated human beings and Harlem gave us that opportunity and so consequently Harlem has a reputation uh you mention Harlem to most anybody right away you think of a place that's black strong and proud you know you don't think of anything less than that when you think in terms of Harlem so so there was a feeling in the air that we were going to get what we needed no matter what and then we had Adam Clayton Powell who was a mm probably one of the greatest politicians of all time, black or white. I mean, he got things done. I mean, he was a very influential person in Congress. And when the anti-poverty programs came into existence, he made sure Harlem got a chunk of that money. 
So Harlem was was always at the forefront of a lot of things that were taking place in the country. And Adam Clayton Powell was right there, politically speaking, to make sure we were never left out. So there was, and then uh, there was whole movements to integrate certain areas that black people could shop in but couldn't work at, like Bloomstein's was a big department store in Harlem. Adam said, shut them down. They're not going to give you jobs in a place where you spend your money. You don't need to go there. And so next thing we know, they shut Bloomstein's down, and Mr. Bloomstein started hiring black people. And so, I mean, it's like a lot of changes took place that affected the entire country. And Harlem was the uh, actual initiator of many of those changes. So there was, when the Black Power Movement came into existence, Harlem was a perfect place to, like, uh, nurture that. Because it was already this feeling of being black and strong and, and, and wanting power. And having maybe a little bit, but wanting more power than what we had. So there was this movement now, because you've killed the civil rights movement. The only movement left is for us to have power so we can control the destiny of our lives. And that, and that was a logical step after we went out of our way, marched, pleaded, chanted, prayed for just civil liberties. And now that's been blown away by Sri Martin Luther King. So we have to go for ourselves. So we have to really maybe be a little belligerent and clear about the fact that we, we've got to have some power to be in charge of who we are and what we're going to do with our lives. So, so that was a significant aspect of the movement, and Harlem seemed to be a perfect bedfellow for it to grow. Great answer. Um, I want to switch lanes a little bit, and I'm hoping you can educate me here. It seems to me that what you guys were doing and what the Watts Prophets were doing were somewhat along the same lines. Was there a, a connection there, or were you aware of their work, or did one come first and influence the other? Can you kind of educate us about that? The Watts Prophets were in existence. We didn't know anything at all about the Watts Prophets until after the first album came out. Okay. The first album came out, and then an MD, one of the brothers in the group, had said something to me and Umar because we know each other very well, and we did it. We've done a gig together. Matter of fact, a couple. Uh, he said, "You know, we got started before you guys. You know." So I said, "Well, yeah, maybe you did, but who wowed the crowd?" I said, <laughs> "You know," and, and, and I said, "I mean, I had to be clear about it because when we put out that first album, it changed a lot mm. of." everything that we know to be saleable music today. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea that you could run your mouth with a beat or whatever in the back and make all this money. These kids have made this lots and lots of money from running. You have to sing, you have to sing on key, you have to sing on, yeah. and it's just run your mouth, do your little rhyme, get a little beat behind it, and you, and, and you can go for the bank. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I, who would think that that could have been a lucrative thing? We were, and because what the last folks are doing, we were trying to use a method to reach the people right. in a way that that we felt could be effective, but at the same time, it could it would it would jumpstart us into doing the right thing to to help us liberate ourselves, take this foot off our neck, so to speak. But when we put out the album, it became just a big deal. 
by his word of mouth has sold a million copies. So when we talk about the Watts Prophets, yes, they were around. They did some stuff, but they didn't have the imprint on the minds of black folks like the last boys did. We happen to say something that stuck in the imaginations of our people. And I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud and pleased that we could actually touch a vein or be right on the pulse of the folks that we were concerned about. Because that's really how you prove uh, your worth. Did you say anything that communicated with me directly? Did you touch my mind and my soul? And the last voice did that. Not saying the Watts Prophets didn't, but we did it at a higher volume and we did it with a whole lot more impact. And I know that the Watts Prophets know that as well as everybody else. And I appreciate their existence on the West Coast and I'm very happy that we're friends. But we definitely were the straw that stirred the drink. There's no doubt about it. Mm, that's that's great. How how does uh how does the work and career of Gil Scott Heron intersect with the stuff that Well Gil Scott Gil Scott was a student well, he was a student body representative at Lincoln University when myself, Felipe and came with it to perform. Mm. Um, and uh, at the end of the performance, he came, it's in his book, actually. Yeah, at the end of the performance, he came back to our dressing room wherever we were, you know, we were stationed at, and he said, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a group just like you guys. And I told him personally at that moment, I said, that's what we want. We want last poets all over the world. Go for it, man. And I didn't know what I was saying, because he took me very seriously and started doing this group. And then, um, I mean, we, a year before he, he checked out, we were both, we had a gig at the Carter Baron Amphitheater in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Beautiful gig, because the forecast was supposed to be some kind of rain, it didn't rain, place was packed. He gave a great show, we gave a great show. And then had the paparazzi interviewed Gil and I at the end. So the guy asked with me there, he says, all right, Gil, tell us now, are you a last poet? And so Gil said, yeah, I'm a last poet. Mm-hmm. And so he looks at me for confirmation, and I say, yes, he is a last poet. He's not a functioning member in the group, but his philosophy of poetry is last poet poetry, mm-hmm. and that's the connection. I mean, he said, well, what about him biting off of your poem? I said, what poem he bite off of? You know, your poem about the revolution in television. Mm-hmm. I say he did not bite off of my poem. I said, Gil Scott Heron, graduated my poem. Mm-hmm. I said, when the revolution comes, some of us will probably catch it on TV with chicken hanging from our mouths. Yes, he heard that when we went to Lincoln University and performed it because it was in the, it was on the repertoire. We definitely performed it. It was a hot piece. I said, and then he heard it clearly and well enough to recognize what we do. We stand on the shoulders of each other. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about catching it on TV with chicken hanging from our mouths. Gil simply said, it won't be televised. I said, said, that's the next level. I said, that's the only thing you can do. When we hear something that moves you, how can you be moved? Show me the advancement of your movement. Don't stay in the same circle, because now that's called, that's just biting completely, Mm. and it's copycatting. But if you can advance it, take it to the next level, I have to appreciate it, and I hope you do too, because I think it's very special. And it's so funny because 
both Gil and I have been accused of writing each other's poem. Yeah. I have been stopped by people on the street. They say, oh, dude, last words, I love you guys, man. The revolution not be told by us. And I say, yeah, right on, brother. And I just keep it moving. <laughs> and, I was, and I was with Gil one time, and the brother ran right up to Gil and said, Gil Skyron, oh, man, one of my favorite artists, brother. Man, you keep it real. You keep it real, man. Yeah, brother, when the revolution comes, Gil said, right on. And we just looked at <laughs> each other and laughed. Because both of the poems are they're two very popular poems that deal with revolution and television, mm, and, right. and and so we didn't care. Gil was my brother, a wonderful spirit, a good, sincere brother who didn't have no curveballs to throw at you. He was straight, no chaser. I appreciated him very much, and it because he did do some sincere work. He will live forever. Wow, thank you for that. Thank you for that great story. Um I just wanted to I just wanted to ask you. Um I read that you uh left the group for about 4 years or so due to do a larceny charge. And I wanted to know if you know what what how did that affect you as an artist and if there were any takeaways from your time away? When I was out when I went to prison down south? Yes. Yeah, well yeah, I was see the thing about it is that I had never I didn't have my hands bloody or dirty or nothing. I really felt many times like I was a fraudulent revolutionary. I I mean, I hadn't done anything other than get on stage, read some poetry, and run my big mouth and sound like I was I was uh, somebody who I really had wasn't. I didn't feel like I was really the person that people thought I was. Mm. So I wanted to get involved. I wanted to be actively involved. I wanted to have my hands dirty or bloodier. I wanted. I just wanted to do more than just get on stage, doing poetry and being praised for being a revolutionary. And all I did was sit with my pen and a piece of paper and write something that I could say. I just thought that that was a cheap way to be involved in the movement when there are people who are marching, who are who are, who are going, who are just doing all kinds of physical things to try to bring about this liberation. I didn't think what I was doing was enough. So. When I left the group, I was in search of finding out my capacity as a real revolutionary, who I really was and how I fit in. And the thing that, that, that really took me to the next level in many ways was going to Shaw University, a black college in North Carolina, and realizing that black students pledge Greek. And that freaked me out because I didn't realize it was a serious issue where we're, we're, we're taking brands and we're putting them on our bodies and we're, we've got these step shows and I mean it just blew me away and I'm just I'm like newborn aware in my blackness and my Africanness and I just thought that was an abomination we're pledging Greek and we got African societies that we're not, not paying any attention to so I started the Yoruba Society at Shaw University I became a real serious cultural revolutionary and I had folks wearing African clothes and changing their names and I was just Africanizing the entire school and I would embarrass you if you came out there with your Greek step show. <laughs> I would bring out my African drummers. I just I'm, and I would make speeches. I mean I was I was really I know a pain in the butt for a lot of people and it was uh, but you know in a, a very and I was so serious and I was just very ardent about it to the point where you know I had about 50 people in my organization and it was it was a serious movement 
Because I first of all, I was just totally appalled. I'm at a black school, and but they're acting white. I couldn't believe it. I, I just, just, I just thought that I was going to go someplace where it was all everything was going to be like collard greens and cornbread, but it, it wasn't like that. So anyway, the fact is that one thing led to another. I had this wonderful cultural thing going on. I'd even had uh, or started a group where I had singers and dancers and actors carrying out, we were doing little skits, dealing with people becoming more aware and conscious. It was a lot of stuff. I utilize, I utilize all, every creative bone in my body to try to advance the way we feel about ourselves mm. at, while I was at Shaw University. And it was a beautiful time. And, and But then I was challenged by some guys about if the cops vamped on our cultural organization and our beautiful sisters with their beautiful African clothes, how are we going to protect them? You got guns. And we didn't have any guns. Gun, guns weren't a part of my pro, my plan, my, my my program or my plan. I wasn't thinking about guns. Hmm. Um, so, But I told this guy, I said, if anybody can get guns, that's no problem. If we have to have them, we can get them. And so I designed a way for us to get some guns. They got these guns and... Um, but then two of the guys that I put on the summit, they dropped a duffel bag full of guns and went back. And they got busted because they took it in the form of back with them. There was a whole bunch of stuff that just went wrong. And I felt responsible because I had two guys in jail. And I wanted to get them out as soon as possible because I knew they were probably wanted for something someplace else. And they stayed there too long. It was going to be a compounded situation. So anyway, one thing led to another. I knew where... The Klan had their meetings because the white boy they tried to recruit had given me information about their headquarters. And I thought that it would be real slick if me and my partner robbed the Klan and got enough money from the Klan to get our boys out of jail. I wow. figured that's like killing two birds with one stone, embarrass the Klan and get my boys out of jail at the wow. same time. So that was the plan. Got the money. Um, and got the money to the right people but in the process Alex and I got to court and consequently I served three years and nine months in prison at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina and I must say this is probably the best some of the best years of my life because I had a chance to slow down, check myself completely the whole 360 degrees of me inside out and um and, and and I wrote every single day. Mm. Essays, short stories, two novels, poems, songs. I was a writing fool. That was I used that that whole experience to not serve time but to get time to serve me. Mm. And I made it work every single day. I developed, I grew, I got wiser, I became stronger in terms of my understanding of what I had to do as a human being. It was a great learning period, a great time out for me. And um, I, I just, I made it work. I made it work. Mm. And I felt very proud of myself for what I had gone through. Because simultaneously, I also got my degree at Shaw University because when my custody was changed from maximum to medium, I used a program they had called Study Release, mm. which allowed me to leave the prison in the day and go to school and be back in prison at a certain time in the evening. And I just had to make sure I was back on time. So I turned the whole prison thing into like a little getaway vacation in many ways. 
That's incredible. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. <laughs> yeah, we uh wow. So w- what what message if any would you give to the the kind of inheritors of of the last poet's legacy, the rappers? We, we have to see today? each other. You know what? There's only one message, man. We must be sacred to each other. We are beautiful people, but we spend too much time milling about in the ugliness of us. And we we will we'll harp on something petty that we could just dismiss to move to something more major and important. But we live we deal with petty thoughts and petty ideas. We're we're and we're bigger than that. We are magnificent and brilliant and beautiful. But for us to really believe that and to execute that in our day to day lives seems to be a bit of a problem. Like somebody's out to get us. We got. Some of us are suffering from paranoia. I mean, but my message is that we must recognize that we have got to see each other. When we say brothers and sisters, let's make that stick. Let's not just have that just as a statement that we use to refer to each other, but it means that we're close, that we're family, and that we should look out for each other like you would look out for your brother or your sister. You wouldn't just throw them to the wolves. So we need to see each other as sacred. We need to recognize that each of our lives are valuable and that we should do everything in our power to help each other in every way we can. And for those that don't want to be helped, believe them alone. You can't force yourself on anybody. Just, But you want to help those people who are looking for it. Set up projects that will work, that are manageable, that can take place. And we have to be big projects that can be small. But the fact is that we need to be about activity and trying to advance our lives in every conceivable way. We've had all kinds of success stories from from Black Wall Street in Oklahoma to all other kinds of places like the uh, the Bijou in Mississippi. I mean, just different places all over all over this country where we were successful in business and and finding a way to live in spite of all the misery this guy has given us and. Then that place was burnt down, something happened, it was disrupted. But we have got to continue to fight and continue to grow and to try to find ways to advance this knowledge that we were born with and share the goodness that's in our hearts. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I um, I want to I just want to I guess in closing give you uh Elaine to talk a little bit about the new project. Um, oh yeah, Transcending Talks of Times, I'm very proud of it. I think it's going to be a beautiful statement being made by the last poets for all of those folks who know about us and those that don't know about us. I love the way it was produced. I love what Jamal and Dean did. He's a funky bass player, and the bass is very prominent on most of these pieces. Mm. I think I love the complimentary pieces that he's put with it. Like he has a, a guy playing a viola with of uh, uh, behind a, a, a love poem that I did. He's got different folks uh, bringing in different aspects that really help make it happen. I just think it's a wonderful project, besides the fact that the title itself speaks clearly as to what we need to be about, transcending toxic times. Because it, I don't know in any period of I've been living here as time has been more toxic than they are right now. And it's not just because of the orange clown who's playing like he's a president, but it's because of the system itself. 
it has never ever really been uh, something that we could rely upon to help us. And you know, a lot of people got very upset because Barack Obama was the president. He didn't do nothing especially different or great for black folks. He was not the president for black people. He was the president for all of America, and he was very good at what he did. And he was done. He was treated just like most black men are treated. Any position they get, be a maintenance man. He was a maintenance man. He was the guy that cleaned up the mess. There was a mess created by the Bushes. They brought Brock in, and he cleaned it up. When have you got a better cleaner than a black person? <laughs> we 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 are the best cleanup people ever, and America knows that. And we will clean up your mess and make you look good, and you'll get all the credit. Mm. And that's what happens. So uh, I'm not upset with Brock. Brock did his job based upon what his job entailed. People don't realize it, but the president doesn't run nothing. He, he's he got strings, and they got some people pulling on him. He's a puppet, and he's got to listen to the people who are really running the country, who many of us don't even know their names. So it's a whole society that has been in existence since the inception of America. And black people have got to realize we have got to have our society as well, because we can't look forward to judging this character with our heart. He doesn't have a heart and he doesn't have the understanding that we do of what, what life's about. He doesn't even know how to celebrate. Whenever they celebrate, they tear stuff up. They're destructive. They don't know how to enjoy living. That's not a part of their diet. Mm. Wow. So we 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 really appreciate uh, all the sentiments expressed on here today. Um, it's it's called translating, transcending toxic transcending times. toxic times. Transcending toxic times, and so that's I mean that's what the mission is. We want to transcend. I don't think any of us want to be stuck in a poisonous zone. And that's what's happening right now. Many of us are caught up with this poison and we're trying to find a way to breathe fresh air in between the poison. And it's very difficult to do. I mean, we have too many sisters getting cancer. Too many brothers are getting cancer. These things didn't happen 30, 40 years ago. Mm. I mean, being around certain folks is not good for our health. Mm. And it shows up in so many ways, spiritually, we are having some suffering as well. And we need to work on that. I'm not telling you what God you should practice or preach or pray to. That's your choice. But be about exercising your spiritual value because we're spiritual people. And if you let your spirit die, that's like corroding inside. You're dying inside yourself. So we got to uplift that. We've got to learn how to share and have sincere conversations with each other. So there's a bunch of stuff that we need to do personally to upgrade our lifestyle. I have faith that we're going to do all that, but it's still going to take some time. Well, we, we thank you for joining us for all the work you've put in, and we encourage everybody to, to check out the new project and the old projects if, you, if you're not up on The Last Poets. Thank you so much for being on the program. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to seeing you on Saturday, possibly.
so yeah, um, you could hear us during the interview just kind of floored at the uh, the depth and breadth of of everything Abby Ojun was laying down. So we definitely thank him for his contributions. And there's more. We have part two is our interview with Umar Ben Hassan, um, also of the Last Poets, and so he gives us you know a little bit of 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 different nuance uh, to the story of how they got started and his feelings on what's going on today. So here is part two. Dead Bod Rap Pod. Once again, we have another incredible interview um, with a really seminal figure in to the rap genre. Uh, we are so pleased and privileged to have uh, Mr. Ben Hassan of The Last Poets on with us. How are you? I'm fine, man. I'm just waiting for y'all to, you know, call me and so we can get started. That's all I'm mentioning. Anyway, you know, very patiently and very sincerely waiting for y'all to call. That's all. All right. All right. Well, we, we definitely all. appreciate it. So can you talk okay. to us a little bit about, um, you know, the, the last poets are, are credited by many, including us with being the forerunner to the rap genre. Can you talk a little bit about where did the idea come from to put the word over the beat in the way that you guys did? Like you talk well, about that a little bit. Start. Yeah, well, it started with uh, Abby O'Doone and Kylan Kane and David Nelson and uh, in New York City. They had did some uh, poetry at a festival in um, uh, in New York, but they each had their own little following. So people liked what they did on their own, but said, why don't you guys try to get together and do something? And they did. They, um, they got together and they tried to... Uh, they became well. They tried to do some group stuff together, and they had a they had a sing a little anthem, a little musical anthem that when they came on uh, stage, and it was uh, "Are you ready? You got to be ready. Are you ready, niggas? You got to be ready." It was a chant that was going on at Howard University at the time. So when they started music to come onto the stage, and if they would do one chant like that, then somebody would do a poem. Okay, they would do their poem, and the next one, they'd, are you ready, niggas? Doom would do his poem. Next one, are you ready, niggas? You know, God and Cain would do that. So that's how they came. And so they decided to get together and make a group. And David Nelson had been reading some, a poem by Little Billy Cocosili, who we met 10 years ago, finally. And he had a poem called A Walk Towards the Sun. And he said, that poem, we are the music, we are the heartbeat, we are the sound of the last one. So therefore... We are the last poets, so that's how we got that name. Wow, that's amazing. We're talking. This is sixty-eight, sixty-nine, in New York. Yeah, it was. Um, it was in nineteen fifty-nine. Okay. No, nineteen sixty-eight in Mount Morris Park, New York, in Mount Morris Park, nineteen sixty-eight in Mount Morris Park. Okay, thank you for that. Um, you had mentioned um, Abby O'Doon, and um, you know, you guys are the original members. I want to talk. A little bit about the first time you and um, Abby O'Doon met each other. How did he strike you? Yeah, well, I met Abby O'Doon. Then I was coming into my nationalistic scene. 
at uh, Antioch College, uh, and they were there doing the show. This was in the spring of 1969, and they were doing the show. And I was put in head of security. You know, I was told to check everybody, make sure everybody, you know, were clean and straight so would nobody get hurt or the children would get hurt or the, or the entertainers would get, you know, you know, shot at or whatever. And so Abby O'Doom, you know, he came up to the desk and he had, he had this deep voice then. It was even deeper than it was now. And he said, I'm Abby O'Doom, you know, I'm, I'm one of the last poets. And I said, well, no, but you got to get checked too, but, you know, you got to get checked. No, man, no, I'm, I, you know, I'm Abby O'Doom. I said, no, man, you got to get checked. And he kept resisting me. So what I did was I pulled up my, um, I put up my, my, my jacket, my, uh, you know, jacket, and I had at that time a 50, I had a 45 and a 38, um, you know, on my side. So I said, listen, brother, you need to check in or check out. And he said, okay, okay, I'll check in. I'll check in. I'm checking in. But then he got on the stage and he got on his bailiff. When he got on the stage, he said, who's that crazy motherfucker y'all got out there? He said, he going to kill all of us before white man. But then when him and Felipe and Guy and Kane got into their poetry, I man, excuse my language, it fucked me up. Because I was doing a little writing, then just a little writing, but it fucked me up. So that's when I decided I wanted to become a last poet. Mm. And so, you know, I told you know, the day when you both cooled out and June told me, listen, we got a love called the East Winds on 125th Street, Harlem. If you ever decide to um, come up to New York, you know, come check us out. So, man, I'm, I'm back to Ohio and cut all my ties with family up there, and I got the fuck out of Akron, Ohio. And I went to New York, and I landed. I just, I didn't have no money at that time because I got fired from my job at Firestone Tire and Rubber because I think I was the first one in America called a tire, uh, a terrorist by my, um, by the, 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 the manager of the hotel because he, he had caught me in the Akron Beacon Journal. We had a little ride in the, in the, in the Akron, during the National Guard, Ohio National Guard, I had a gun in my back. And that picture came out in the papers, uh, you know, boom. And that was my, that was my gig at uh, Firestone Time Rubber. But that's okay. I got fired and had no more job. And I wasn't hustling in the streets no more. So I had to find out how I'm going to get to New York. So mm-hmm. I pawned my sister's, you know, record player. You know, the one with the little three, 33 records that would drop every time one would play? Mm-hmm. And so I pawned that record player. I pawned her record player. <laughs> and she, ain't never, she ain't never let me forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> Some years, so I pawned that record, and I got twenty five dollars for it. So, so a ticket at that time from Akron, Ohio, to New York, fifteen dollars. So I had ten dollars. But when we stopped in Pittsburgh halfway, I spent money on some food. That was in, uh, I had ten dollars. I spent nine hundred seventy, not nine hundred, but nine dollars and seventy eight on food. So that only left me with twenty two cents in my pocket. So when I landed at Port Authority. In February 1969, I just had three or four poems and a, a book of poetry and a pair of jeans in the back and 22 cents in my pocket. Yeah. So, but I went up to, um, I finally got up to Harlem. I remember went up to Harlem and got to the East Wind where they were, and there was Abel doing. He was waiting. So he said, Yeah, man, come on, I'm going to hook you up. So he hooked me up at this place called the Alamac Hotel. It was where a lot of the minority students from City College stayed because they couldn't afford to stay on campus. Mm. So he got me and he snuck me in for, um, for uh, after a day or two, I got snuck in and got in a little place and got to hook up by this one sister who, you know, knew doing, and she ran the place, so she let me sneak in. I was uh, going from there, from a room to room on my own, but then I hooked up with this sister there at that time. And, Boom, I became known that I was there, that I was a poet. 
So when I, you know, I know I had come to, I know I had come to New York to be a, a last poet, but I know it's come. It was going to happen so soon because I'd be doing and Elijah, the poem who, because, you know, Alan Kane had left, David Nelson had left, and Philippe had left, and it was just Abiel Dune and, and Elijah, the cooler player. So he came and told the people, listen, there's a brother here from Ohio, and I'm going to let y'all decide whether he becomes the last pull or not. I'm the only one in the group whom the people decided to put in the group. Everybody else knows each other from New York, Philly, whatever, wow. but I'm the only one. Who uh, the people? So you know, and at that time, I had a I had about three or four poems. One was called Nigger Town, and one was called Motherfucker, and I did the Motherfucker poem, of course. You know that, right, right. and you know, people like they, you know, Malcolm was a so and so motherfucker, Martin was a so and so motherfucker, and Shay was a so and so motherfucker. So you get your people, and yeah, he's a little rough. He's kind of rough. He's a little cool. But put him in the group. So Edward don't say, okay, mom, you're going to become a last sport, but you ain't never doing that motherfucker poem again. <laughs> and I, and I, have, I have not done that poem in 50, 50 years. That was the but last so poem. So I became a group, and that was the last poem for the last, and that motherfucker poem was the last poem for the last sport. So me and Amiel Doom, we got together, and then there was another brother who was coming in out the East Wind at that time, that nobody liked him because he rhymed all the time. Of course, you know, that was Jalal Messer, you know, Lafayette protein. But I liked the brother. He was a street brother. He was a project brother, just like me. So, man, I looked up. And I said, yeah, dude, man, come on, man. Put him in the group. He got it because he's good, man. His poetry is good. But, you know, dude was kind of weird because, like I said, I don't just like him. They didn't trust him because he's a little too street for some of them. But I said, man, come on, man. Put him in the group. Let's put two of us get together. So, boom, dude, acquiescing and, and um, Lafayette. Well, Jalal, as I last knew when he died, became one of the last poets. So it was me, Jalal, and Andrew Dillon to put out the first album and just open up that whole world of poetry and history of the last poets, you know. So that's how it began. That's incredible. Thank you. Um, when you first started mm-hmm. performing around New York, was it mainly in poetry venues or in musical venues or wherever you could? Well, at that time, when it, at first it was just around the poetry venues, uh, Matter of fact, there was one sister, uh, she's, a, uh, she's a professor now, and she's from Ohio. Uh, uh, she, she's a professor at Virginia, I can't remember her name. But she, but she had a venue. She, matter of fact, I did poetry at her, at her place before I did poetry at the, at the East Wind, because we both were from Ohio. And matter mm-hmm. of fact, that day I did poetry for her. Uh, Rudolph Kelly from Cincinnati was in the audience, too. And he saw that I was trying to do some things, and after the, I did the poetry, which really wasn't a poem at all, it was just some mismatch that I put together, but he gave me a pretty dollar bill, and he told me, you know what, you're going to be okay, you're going to make it here. And the next time he saw me was a year later at the Apollo Theater, and he said, I told you, boy, didn't you, you're going to make it. So, you know, that's how that went. So we were doing this things right around New York, basically, sometime in Philly, you know. Mm. Okay, so when you guys started putting out records, um, and this is like 70, 71, um, yeah. the, the content was just so aggressive and mind-blowing. Um, you guys were on Nixon's COINTELPRO list, 
Uh, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so how was there any sense of like fear? Like I listen to those records now and it makes me look around and be kind of afraid. Like, does the man know what's going on here? Um, yeah, but man, we, we, we each know our own FBI, uh, you know, uh, officer and agent or whoever who was following us. Cause we, we, we know man, these guys have come up, listen, you, I would be talking on my phone and, one of them would break in and say, oh, my, I was a wonderful performance. Uh, this is man. <laughs> yeah, man, no, no. Running, running. He said, this is madness. I almost brought me to tears. Then he hang up, click, and doom. And here's um, face to face. So these guys let us know that they were, you know, we got, we on y'all. We know who you are. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't y'all can't take it a little too far because there could be some dangers and some things going on that you may not like. So we said, fuck you all anyway. You know, we're going to keep doing this. what we're doing. And we, and we did. We were just, man, fuck that. We were young and crazy, man. But we thought we were warriors and we thought we were doing the right thing. So we weren't going to put no fear in us and stop us from what we were doing, man. We all just went through some changes later on in our lives. We doing, went to jail and, we, you know, I ran through the drug thing. So, but we were younger, man. No, you know, we were straight and narrow. We poets. We warriors for the community, for black people. Mm-hmm. You know? And do you feel like the when hip hop kind of picked up on on what you guys were doing and it was translated into rap and hip hop culture, do you feel it's done justice to what you guys started? Do, do we feel what that like it, it was like, like it like it's done justice to the to the movement that you started when you listen? But to you know, rap? I'm gonna tell you something. You know, we uh, we weren't really mad, mad at you guys got it on because we opened up the record industry because, you know, mm. I mean, the record industry, we fucked up the record industry. Here's the motherfuckers that just got some voices and the drum and they sell a million, two million dollar records. Just think well, if we could put some music to that and some mm-hmm. whatever they call it at that time, hip-hop, just think of the music we made. So we, we know who we were. We know what we contributed to hip-hop. And, that, and I know some Jay, Jay-Z and have come up even before Biggie. That matter of fact, I lived in around the corner from Biggie, they all, they Tupac too, they all let us know, you know, that we were who they were because their fathers listened to us and their father talked about me. Some of us, we did some gigs. When, um, two, before Tupac started, we did a couple of gigs. We did, we was in that movie with Tupac, so mm-hmm. a lot of them know who we were, man. A lot of them know, and a lot of them gained respect. But, you know, they made the money that we didn't make. So well, I'm not mad, but I'm not have to stop yet, madam. Some of them used it wisely and carefully and nicely, and some of them just, Play around and turn into a whole lot of bullshit. So, but what are we gonna do? We couldn't get mad, you know. We know that we opened it up. We know that we opened up the record industry for them, and they know it too. But we'll never get um, credit for that, you know, because a lot of the A and R people later you know, came on and used our presence. You know, will never give us respect for that. But we happy, man. We just happy to be here at seventy and seventy-one years. You know, wow. the shit I've been in through the last twenty years, I should be dead by now, but I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still here. Nice, nice. You know, just sort of in closing, I mean, it's been about 50-plus years. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the, the new album, uh, Trend, Transcending Toxic Times, and um, sort of the themes that that went into that? Hey, what, what about the theme of the, uh, the album? You know, the mean? themes and the ideas that went into the new album, Transcending Toxic Times. Can you talk how, a little bit about that? How did we come to the new album? Yeah. How did we come to that theme? How did we come to that, that theme? Yes. No, it was a drum. It was our drum. It was our excuse me. It was our um, it was our drummer who started that. And Bob Atundi, who is a poet himself, and one day we're just gonna let him have his own show because he likes good poetry. He's just thinking, man, this is toxic times, Jamal. 
you know, we have to think about that. I said, oh, I'm asking people to talk. So I know, yeah, that should be our next, that should be our next name for our next album, Toxic Times. And Baba Toon, Baba Toon, they brought that into to being. The whole idea of Toxic Times. I'm not, but that's Baba. You know, that's Baba. That's <laughs> what he's always on the right beat. He's always on the right beat. So that's how we get, came with that title. And 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 it's true because these are some really tough. You know, I stopped watching TV. I stopped watching TV because of Donald Trump. Because he, every time I would see him lying to the American public and everybody go, and just not, it made me sick, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was getting sick mentally watching him destroy whatever the president, the presidency meant mm-hmm. in America, and it just fucked me up, man. I'm just, I, you know, now here I am, a black man. I just said, yeah, I don't give a fuck about the president. But not only the president, but the fact that he was just lying and constantly lying, openly lying mm-hmm. to people, and nobody was really. Uh, making a noise about it here and there, yeah, but no, nah, man, he made me sick. I don't watch TV no more, man. I don't. I just said he made me sick. Okay. Well, perfect. Hello? Hello. Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Okay, perfect. Well, you know what? Uh, we just want to thank you again for your time and, um, you know, being on the program, um, just a person of your caliber and the extensive I, history. Man, I, it's an honor. I, I want to thank y'all for even considering this, man. I don't know how big y'all are, how smart y'all are, but I, I appreciate the fact that y'all consider that you want to talk to us. And I really thank you for that. And I wish you the best, your group, or your ideas, and whatever you're doing. I hope you'll be successful, really. Thank, thank you, you so much, much sir. Thank you. Have a good one. Have a good one, sir. Thank you. All right. You, you guys have a nice evening, man. Peace. Peace. All right, so that was part two, our interview with Umar bin Hassan and uh, Abby Odun of The Last Poets. Just, yeah, I don't even deserve this. I think I'm just, <laughs> I think I'm going to retire after this episode. That, that was really cool. Um, Original members. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and thanks to Dave for booking it. Um, it kind of occurred to us during the interview process that uh, Touchstone for you guys, if you have, if you've never listened to a Last Poets record, if you listen to this podcast, you've probably heard Common's song "The Corner," which was um, his single off of the B record. Was that was that, um, or the one after that? I think it was the one after that. I could be wrong. It's it's a great song, yeah. and um, he has um, at least Abi Odun. I'm not exactly sure who the other gentleman is on it. Um, do their poetry and like to. Right to bring really bring something special to that track. So um, incredible song, always been a fan of that song. And I thought it's cool. Like common does make sense to be the guy to reach out and common like, sense. put, a, <laughs> put a little, give him a resurrection. Yeah. Oh, but one day it all makes sense. Um, <laughs> a little water for chocolate. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then he, uh, um, so anyway, he's like, you know, keeps that kind of like, actually we kind of make fun of him for his like kind of like slam poetry microsoft commercial style oh, these days but because when he does it it's corny but right. um <laughs> on i think on the corner it's a it's a great uh marriage of what common does best and also these pieces that the last poets bring and and the track is right it's like it's yeah it, it comes together yeah so um always been a fan so if you if you don't know any other track you've probably heard the last poets in that way but Anyway, long story long, we just want to thank um, Abiyodun and um, Umar bin Hassan for 
joining us. I think that makes three separate ways we've said his last name. I don't, I don't know if we've <laughs> gotten it right any of the times. Us. Either way, huge, huge honor. Yeah, totally. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, Dad Bod Rap Pod, you guys, I mean, I don't want to toot our own horn here, but, you know, shit's real on this program. Uh, so we hope you've enjoyed this, and uh, you never know who else is in Dave's Rolodex. Stay tuned. <laughs> Dad Bod Rap Pod.